Well, Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. You know, Paul writes a word to Titus on shepherding the flock towards unity. That's the title of our sermon, Shepherding Towards Unity. But before we get to Paul's inspired wisdom on this subject, uh, I thought we could read some tips from an article by Elizabeth Scott. The article is entitled, Becoming Adept at Dealing with Difficult People and Avoiding Conflict. Maybe there's something Paul missed out on. Maybe he didn't hear all that the Holy Spirit had to say. Maybe it never made its way to Titus on the island of Crete. So I thought we could bring some contemporary wisdom to dealing with difficult people. Have you found it difficult to deal with difficult people? I imagine churches uh, are equally as challenging. So let's see what Mrs. Scott has for us here. Number one, accept the reality of who they are. In dealing with difficult people, don't try to change the other person. You will only get into a power struggle, cause defensiveness, invite criticism, or otherwise make things worse. It also makes you a more difficult person to deal with. So accept the reality of who they are, number one. Number two, see the best in people. Developing your optimism and reframing skills can help here. The other person will feel more appreciated and you will likely enjoy your time together more. Number three, get your needs met from others who are able to meet your needs. That's deep. Rely on people who have proven themselves to be trustworthy and supportive or find a good therapist if you need one. Number four, get some space if you need it. Know when it's time to distance yourself from people and do so. Number five, work to maintain a sense of humor. Shows like Modern Family and books like David Sedaris's Naked can help you see the humor in dealing with difficult people. So here's my question for us. Is this going to help Titus pastor his flock towards unity? Compromise? Getting his needs met? Maintaining a sense of humor? Is this what is going to bring sweet, long-lasting unity to the churches in Crete? I don't think so. I think I'd rather rely on what Paul is going to tell Titus in this pastoral epistle. But I think we also have to be honest with ourselves. We have a tendency to think that if we are doing everything right, then things will go smoothly. That we won't have conflict. That we won't have division. Nor will we have divisive people. And certainly no departures, right? Who's believed that before? You don't need to raise your hand. But I have. Something must be wrong. We have division in our body. We have a divisive person. We have departures. The fact is, this side of heaven, we will have opposition. We have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion. And the mistake we make is always thinking that opposition comes from without. But in fact, oftentimes it comes from within, right? But here's the great thing. 
God has not left us without tools. And what he gives Titus here today, what he gives us here as well, are tools that produce unity. Let me give you a little background of this book since we're, we're sort of parachuting in. Paul is writing this letter, most likely from Corinth, around A.D. 63. And he's writing to one of his top lieutenants on the Isle of Crete. Now, Crete is a, it's a rock in the Mediterranean. I used to, to do business with a fellow there. And I, and I said, what, what is it like to be on Crete where, where Paul visited? He said, it's a rock. It's a rock in the middle of the Med. It's about 156 miles long, 30 miles wide. But it has a long and storied history. We know from Acts chapter 2 that there were people at Pentecost who heard Peter's sermon, who were regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, who were from Crete. And we can surmise that many of them took that faith and the gospel back to their island. After hearing the word in their own language, they took this truth home. The Apostle Paul probably made a trip there after his first imprisonment, and he left Titus there to, quote, set in order what remains. That's chapter 1. It was a short-term assignment because he tells Titus that he wants him to join him in Nicopolis, which is in western Greece, and he wants to spend the winter there. He plans on leaving other fellas, Artemis or Tychicus, two of Paul's other top men, to finish the work. But Titus was there to set in order what remains, number one, and appoint elders in every city. It's a tough task. And in this section here, he is going to tell him specifically how to preach the word and teach the truth confidently so that your people engage in good works. That's just what I talked about, right? But then that's just the formative he also has to deal with the corrective. Because while good works produce unity, division tears it down. So you have to deal with the divisive. And you have to deal deliberately with them. Three simple points will help you today hold your pastor and elders accountable. Number one, preach the word confidently. Number two, avoid the unprofitable Arguments. Avoid the unprofitable arguments. And three, reject the divisive confidently. If you're looking for a, a timeless truth that encapsulates the text, it's a long one, I, I assure you, but I'll go slowly. Unity in the church, unity in the church is a result of preaching the word shepherding towards good deeds and dealing directly with the divisive. I'll say it again. Unity in the church is a result of preaching the word, shepherding towards good deeds and dealing with the divisive. So like, like a good shepherd, he's going to give him the two tools. One is formative, you know, you, you, you lead with the staff of direction. That's the word of God, okay? But then you also use the rod, the rod of correction, which is, is also the word of God too. 
So there's both formative and corrective discipline. In order to produce unity, you cannot simply use one tool. It is not a one-size-fits-all. Let's look at our first point. Preach the word confidently. Preach the word confidently. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So as I'm studying this text, as I studied it with the men this week, I've got to start off by answering the question, what are these things? What are these things? Well, let's look back at the previous paragraph. Verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which you have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's a very, very deep statement. But if I was to answer the question, what are these things? I can look here and say, well... He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. We might say selfish good deeds. So it talks about who we were. talks about what he did. He saved us according to his mercy through the power of the Holy Spirit. Who he is, who we were, what he did, how we responded. What is that? It's the gospel. It's gospel truth. It is truths about God. It is truths about us. It is truths about salvation. These things are the truths of the gospel. Because I want you to speak these confidently. Where are the truths of the gospel? They're in the word of God. I want you to preach confidently. What does it look like for us to preach the word of God confidently? To speak the truth confidently? Well, it starts in the pulpit here, doesn't it? And it goes from the pulpit, goes to small groups, and then to life-on-life discipleship. It reverberates throughout the pews. It is the under-shepherds of God feeding the Word of God to the people of God in covenant community. Isn't that interesting? If God has chosen to grow us by the power of the Holy Spirit... And the catalyst for that growth is the word of God. Then the growth starts here in the pulpit. Preaching is the proclamation. It is the thus saith the Lord. And then there's the explanation in small groups. There's the fellowship in small groups. There's the pastoring in small groups. And then there's the multiplication in the life on life discipleship. What does that tell you? If I get it wrong here, it's going to be hard for it to be right there. Your small groups are not going to go well. Your discipleship is going to be anemic because you don't have the truths of God's word being fed to you weekly. How can you have output if you don't have input? So he says, I want you to speak these things, these gospel truths confidently, but not for the purpose of making us theological bobbleheads. You know what I mean by that? You you ever seen those little bobbleheads? How out of proportion are those things? 
this huge head that just kind of just bobbles around. But the body does nothing, okay? So it reminds me of people that go, get so theologically fat in their head that there is no service output. No, the purpose here is to spur us to what? To engage in good deeds. And that's a phrase, that's a term that is used over and over and over again throughout the book of Titus. In fact, it's the concept, Jim Chukas mentioned it this week, it's right out of Ephesians 2. We are saved by grace through faith for the purpose of good deeds. The phrase good deeds here literally means to practice a profession, to practice a profession. And as Christians, our, our believing in Christ results in us following Christ. Our loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength results in us what? Loving others as ourselves. Isn't that interesting? Right theology is never disconnected from right living. Theologians say orthodoxy always produces orthopraxy. If it doesn't, you don't really believe it. Can I just say that? I mean, that's the book of James. Faith without works is dead. So as Paul writes to Titus on this island of Crete, and he's dealing with some, some difficult, difficult church members. He says even their own people, even their own poets know what these guys are like. They have a tendency to be difficult, lazy, evil beasts, gluttons. He says, I want you to spur them on towards love and good deeds. How do you do that? Preach the word. Speak it confidently. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And it is this, this concept of good deeds that is the backdrop for this text about dealing with the divisive. So we spent a lot of time this week saying, hey, don't overlook the context. Don't overlook the backdrop in which Paul is instructing Titus. So we see good deeds, good deeds, good deeds. Speak the truth in order that they might be engaging in good deeds. But it's not only here, it's in the context around it. Look back at chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be what? To be ready for every good deed. I already read verse 5, the, the opposite position, that our good deeds in righteousness, which were good deeds done for selfish reasons, don't count for anything. Now look at the context after. We see examples of those God saved who have engaged in good deeds. Normally we look at, at the closing part of a letter and we just think, oh, these are just names. But Paul has them here for a reason. Verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. 
diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. These men had ministered and had engaged in good deeds. He's saying now you minister to them and engage in good deeds. But there's a problem. You see, within these churches, within this church, there are those who don't want to engage in good deeds, but want to engage in deeds that serve themselves. They don't want to serve others. Oh, they like the theology and talking all about that. But the deeds they want are selfish. Let me show you what I mean. Look at our second point. Avoid the unprofitable arguments. Verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Let's look at these terms for a moment and see what he's talking about. Foolish is the Greek word moros. What does that sound like? Moron. So if you want to read it this way, but avoid moronic arguments. I mean, he's pretty clear here. It means dull or dense. We understand what it means. Genealogies, well, those were probably extra-biblical stories and heroic accounts that, that kind of undergirded or supported the bad doctrine that they were teaching. It's like saying... Um, Hey, you remember Elijah, the great, uh, the great prophet? Well, you know, it was a story about how he used to celebrate these particular feast days and how uh, he did this, that, and the other. So therefore, you should do that. Well, number one, that's not true. And number two, what you're asking them to do is not biblical. But it sort of undergirded the bad doctrine that they were teaching. Perhaps another way that they were engaging in fruitless discussion was... Um, creating levels of doctrine and moving them up higher and higher so that you might be more holy. Now, we, we've kind of seen this in modern day world. It might be something like, um, I don't say the name Jesus. His name was Yeshua. And so when I talk about Jesus, I always use the name Yeshua. And, and so therefore, you're not nearly as holy as I am because I'm using the original pronunciation. Or I go to a Messianic church and we celebrate Passover in addition to the Lord's table. You see what I'm saying? And he's like, hey, 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 hey. You're, you're, you're adding to the gospel. Look at the previous text. I've given you the gospel. Who God is, who we were, what Christ did on the cross and how he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds we have done in our own selfish righteousness, but by his Mercy. Now, here's another interesting side note here. Keep in mind, Titus is half Greek and half Jewish. There seems to be a Jewish flavor here as to these divisive men. Perhaps they were Judaizers. How much more did they not like Titus because he didn't even feel the need to get circumcised? He didn't even feel the need to make himself Jewish. He didn't even buy into the most basic of traditions. 
And this is not only Titus that is having this problem. Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus where he's pastor. Let me read to you 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. You ought to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You might say it this way. The goal of our instruction is good deeds. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Paul hits it again in 2 Timothy. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. This is so interesting because he almost does a wordplay here. This, this unprofitable and worthless. He's just finished explaining the kind of teaching that is profitable for good deeds. And now he is saying, but these kind of theological arguments are unprofitable. I want you to speak boldly about good teaching that produces good works, not bad, fruitless discussion that produces no good works or the wrong kind of works, we might say. And that's kind of the crux that just sort of bubbles to the top after you study this for a while. Have you ever realized that the primary difference between those that edify the body of Christ and those that divide the body of Christ is an issue of good works? Because you can have some of the most orthodox, solid, theological PhDs, even wonderful preachers in the world who can't work their way out of a wet paper bag to serve the body. Right? Why is that? Why is that? Why was it in the first century that Judaism with all of the great Old Testament inspired scriptures with the law couldn't seem to produce good deeds from that theology. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier portions of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you, you should have done without neglecting the others. Theological bobbleheads who argue about tertiary issues or extra biblical issues and systems have no interest in serving the body of Christ, which means they don't actually love God because it is proven that they don't love others. And the good works they do are selfish works in order to gain favor with God. Just like the Pharisees. Wearing this, not doing that, tithing a little bit here. It's all selfishness to gain favor with God. Whereas the gospel, the truth, changes us. We die to self. We serve others. And Paul wants Titus to understand that the problem with divisive men is because they serve self rather than serve others. 
Did you catch that? They serve self rather than serving others. Paul is not saying avoid theological discussions. What he's saying is don't engage in anything that is not an honest argument on theology. But you may say, like I did, well, I, I, don't, I don't think we have a problem with divisive men and genealogies and, and discussions about the law. Just, I just don't think we have that problem. Well, but we do have a like-for-like like application of that, don't we? We've all kind of heard it before. Maybe you haven't recognized it. Postmodern deconstructionism, kind of a big phrase, a big word for Christians who say, well, you know, the Bible's not really clear on that particular issue that it has been clear on for 2,000 years. You know, I, I, I'm not sure that we understand the concept of where the Bible stands on homosexuality or gender roles. Maybe that's your definition of the word. And it's breaking apart things. And the concept is this. If I don't actually acknowledge that there is robust truth, then I don't have to obey it. Right? Another way it shows itself is, as I mentioned, arguing over tertiary issues rather than being about making disciples, making disciples. You may have seen this before. Let's, let's be honest here. Because we preach expositionally, we do sometimes attract the overly academic types. Now, I, I love school. I, I love academia. But, but you know what I'm talking about. The, those who come in and, and who would immediately like to argue over the timing of the rapture. Or, or why they're hyper-covenantal instead of dispensational or whatever. Others have embraced a, a ridiculous extra-biblical system like British Israelism. Have you heard of that? Oh, I know where the ten lost tribes are. They, they, they really uh, migrated to the British Isles and now, and we're the ten lost tribes. I mean, just baloney, okay? Or something called theonomism that a lot of rabid homeschoolers get involved with. That the only authority is the man in the home and everyone else simply submits to him, but they don't have to obey pastors or anyone else. That's their own little church. These are things that, that sound good and have, have a, a sniff, a smell of moralism, much like Pharisees did. But they are not biblical, nor do they edify the body. They only edify self. And look, we're all about theology here, but two things. Number one, our theology drives us to love others through good deeds. Amen? Number two, we do not divide over tertiary issues, even biblical tertiary issues. I think it's great for us to be convictional about third-tier doctrine. Third-tier doctrine meaning, meaning things we, 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 don't, uh, we would not split fellowship over. I think it's great you want to study that. You want to discuss it with someone? Get in the corner of a coffee shop. Have a rousing debate about it. But when you get up, you leave it there. And you make it clear that you will not break fellowship over something that does not make a difference. So this is what Titus has going on in his church. There's guys who are, whether, whether they're teaching it in Sunday school, fellowship, in homes or having conversation, they're creating division. 
And it all has a highbrow, highfalutin, theological air to it. But there are no good deeds coming out of it. There are only deeds that serve self. So how do you deal with that? How do your pastors and elders deal with this? Because this is where the rubber meets the road. We can kind of talk about this in an ethereal sense. But it gets real difficult when that person is a member of our flock. And people have grown to love him. And yet there's division. And it's real easy to sit out there and say, well... He should do this or shouldn't do that, but it gets real hard when you put a name and a face to it. And it gets real hard when the onus falls upon us as elders. So let's look at our third point. Reject the divisive confidently. Number 10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned word factious man is hereticos. That's where we get our word heretic. Now, it, it had not come to mean the full meaning of, of not orthodox, but it did mean to choose for oneself an opinion. And basically, it is a person who takes his opinions and refuses to let them go, his preferences, and seeks to drive a wedge in the body. Here the factious man is described as a word wrangler. He uses words and arguments to rattle the sheep and, and divide the flock. So how are we to deal with this factious man? Do we go back to our psychological suggestions and um, just accept the reality of who they are? You know? Oh, that's just, you know, Mike. That's just the way he is. Yeah, not a big deal. He's got a good heart. Do we uh, endure it? Do we reason with them? Because, I mean, let's be honest. It's easy to preach this, but I want to step into this pulpit here and I want to wrestle with you through it. Because you can read the words on the text as easy as I can. But what it looks like, we have to do together. Amen? So let's talk about what it means. In fact, let's just be practical as to what it looks like. It's someone either teaching or having multiple conversations about an extra-biblical or a third-tier issue. And it is dividing the flock. Because he's basically saying, you either agree with me or I'm putting you over there. Or I'm trying to convince you. Or you need to make this important. You need to proselytize others now. And we get wind of it as elders. Let's say it's a teacher. Okay, we wouldn't have made him a teacher if we didn't trust them. We wouldn't have approved the curriculum if we didn't trust it. And he starts to divert from it. We pull him aside. Hey, Mike. Um, I noticed you were teaching on this. Uh, that's not theologically correct. That's not biblical. I want you to stop teaching on it. Now, I don't need to take a ton of time, though I'm willing to take time from here for the next six months or year and, and have that discussion with him. 
But his obedience to quit teaching that is not predicated upon his understanding that he should quit teaching it, or even his agreement. Even if he still agrees with it, even if he still understands it that way, I need you to quit teaching it that way. Let's say he says, okay, pastor, month goes by, I find out he's having these discussions again. So maybe he quit teaching it in equipping hour, but now he's, he's having discussions in small group, and it's, it's creating division again. So I pull him aside again, and I say, um, hey, Mike, I thought we talked about this. I, I need you to not talk about this. You want to come to me and talk about it? You want to take one of the elders? We'll wrestle through it with you. We'll explain it. But this is not something we divide over. I do not want you feeding the sheep something which is not biblical. You see, I'm working from a, a, a position of presupposition that the word of God does not say this or this does not rise to the level of fellowship. Therefore, as I said earlier, you're not to teach about this. Are we clear? See, I kind of ramped it up a little bit. Sure. He does it again. Hey, Mike, we've, we've had two conversations about this. I've, I've brought Chris or Blaine along with me just so that they, uh, they understand what I'm doing here. Um, we're removing you from membership. But, but uh, you don't understand. Mike, I was really clear about this. We're removing you from membership. And we remove him from the body. You have to understand that is his decision being made. We would not remove someone from even teaching if he were repentant. Do you see what I'm saying? Why can't he even practice the discipline to keep his mouth shut? That tells you what's in his heart. The thought is this, since he will not turn away from his sin, he has turned away from the truth. Therefore, the body must turn away from him. This is no different than Matthew 18, except for like teachers held to a higher standard, the third step of taking it to the body is removed. Why? Why don't, I, why don't we as elders take it to the body and say, pursue him for repentance? Because he has already proven that he will not quit talking about him. And if I now send all of you to go talk to him about it, what is he going to talk about? The same divisive stuff. So it cuts short step three and it goes to step four. Now, the goal is his repentance. The goal all along has been his repentance and restoration. We've talked to him privately. We've talked to him gently, but firmly. 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul addresses this. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So, so the primary goal is restoration. That's what it's been. Don't see this as, though, oh, three strikes, you're out. See this as going to him and going to him. Even after the second warning, you give him another chance. So it's a three-strike deal. We want your restoration. 
But an equal goal and one that takes primacy after the second warning, or I'm sorry, after his, his, his third strike, is protection of the body. We as elders cannot let someone feed poisonous food to the flock alongside good and healthy food from the Word of God. Why? Because sheep will eat whatever is put in front of them. All of us will. Okay? And if I'm not saying, no, this is good and that's bad, then we're going to eat it and then we will lose discernment. We will not be able to tell. Satan doesn't show up in a red suit with a trident. Right? And you say, but pastor, this is, man, this is really hard to do. This really, this, this does not feel right. Amen? But it's only hard to do if you think he doesn't understand why he is doing what he is doing. And verse 11 gives us that clarity, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Again, it's not the mental minutiae that he's necessarily promulgating that is the problem. That is a problem. The issue is, why can't he simply submit to his elders and not teach that? Because he's rebellious. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 explains it clearly. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and men deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. Look, the Bible does not see divisive teachers as either confused or misdirected souls. It sees them as deliberate dividers. See also the book of Jude. See also the book of 2 Peter. John Stott says it well, and, and, and he's not a hammer by any stretch of the imagination. For if after two warnings and two refusals, you may be sure that such a man is warped, having a distorted mind and sinful, he is self-condemned. But let me make it clear. The only reason we would put him out of the body is that he refuses to do this. He refuses to stop talking about it. You got five minutes? Let's go through some application. How are we supposed to respond as a congregation? And I'm going to speak unfiltered. You're like, like you haven't so far. Okay, it's going to get worse. So don't be offended. Number one, you, we need to avoid immediately thinking we know better. When something like this happens, you're immediately going to think, because we're Americans, there's a conspiracy going on. I know better. Or I have all the information about the situation. I'll, I'll promise you, you do not. Um, we're not going to pull anyone off a teaching team again unless they refuse to correct this. Look, as a teacher, I know this firsthand. Sometimes you unwittingly say something that you don't mean, that is confusing, 
or that you're just flat out wrong about and someone corrects you. Remember Priscilla and Aquila pulled Apollos aside and, and showed him a more correct way. So we're growing and learning as teachers. We're going to make mistakes. But guess what? There's an easy fix. Do you know what the easy fix is? I was wrong about this. I, I've now learned this and understand it better. I didn't mean to say that last week. But about two months ago, I said my favorite phrase, we are saved by grace through faith. That works. And what did I say? We are saved by faith plus works. And I said it with all the emphasis. And you guys were supposed to believe me. And you all looked at me like Roman Catholics, like, yes, right. No, good Protestants. Should have. No, you knew, you knew what I said. You knew what I meant. Sorry. We're all going to make mistakes, but all you have to do is, is say, look, I was wrong. Or I should have brought that up. My former pastor used to say it this way regarding confusion in teaching. If there's a, a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. The only reason someone will get put out of the church is because he just refuses to correct bad teaching. What does that tell you about his heart? Or he refuses to be quiet about it. So hold your horses on assuming the best in the teacher and the worst in your elder. Don't jump into prideful arrogance thinking you see it clearly and somehow the elders have an axe to grind. I'll assure you we are regular Joes like everyone else. Watch this. The last thing we want is to deal with this. The last thing your pastor wants to do is to put someone out of the body and have you guys put me on trial for the next three months. Just, just think about it. It's like no one would want to do this. There's a reason. But when it comes to protecting the flock, I quit asking myself what I want. And I do what God has called me to do. Protect the flock. Secondly, don't use the excuse, and I've heard it a million times, but I know so and so well, and this can't be true. First of all, that's ridiculous. Look at the New Testament. Look at church history. No one sees it coming. You, you don't, don't think somehow you would have seen the signs of them being a, a false teacher, especially before your elders who are writing the curriculum, who've told him what to teach. And when you say that, by the way, when you say, I know them well, they would never do that. What you're also implicitly saying is, but you have a nefarious goal in mind. You have an axe to grind. And so in extolling this man's character, which you do not have all the information, you just threw your elders under the bus. Don't do that. Don't do that here. Don't do it at any church. You presume the best. And by the way, time and truth go together. If this man's in the right, guess what? He will not take his ball and go home. He will love the flock enough, even if he's right and the elders are stupid, to close his mouth so that he can keep feeding the flock, and loving on y'all. But the fact that he takes his ball and goes home shows you where he's at. Finally, and this is our responsibility, we need to grow in being good Bereans. We, you, are to be the ones whose antennas are up. Now, I'm not talking about heresy hunters. Don't hear me saying that. I'm not talking about starting a discernment blog. Please don't do that. But having your antennas up and recognizing error and, and when you hear something, especially like an equipping hour that just doesn't sound right, assume the best in the teacher, give the benefit of the doubt, but ask a clarifying question. 
Aaron, did you, um, you're not saying this, are you? Or, or are you saying that? Could you clarify what you mean by such and such? That's such a gracious way. It helps us as teachers out because we don't know how we're saying everything and, and oh, that could have been confusing. But if you don't do that, don't hit him right after equipping hour. Go home. Pray about it. Study your Bible. Give it a couple of days. If you still see that something's wrong, go talk to him about it. Watch his response. See if he's willing to clarify. If you don't get satisfaction, talk to your small group leader or your elders. Ask them next steps, assuming the best. But be willing to protect this flock from something that is untrue. Be a blessing to your shepherds by doing it the right way. Finally, if we do have to reject a man for unrepentant divisiveness, don't undermine the process. Don't disrespect your church family by giving them comfort and maintaining a relationship. Show solidarity with your church. Paul's clear about this. Avoid them. But, but when you see them, admonish them as a brother, meaning you're going to run into them at some point. Lovingly be kind and call them to repentance. But don't, don't give them comfort, because if we have rejected someone, rightfully so, it is not right for you to not reject them, to give them comfort. Plus, you're undercutting their restoration. It's really clear that, that, that the, uh, the, the, the process of biblical reconciliation, whereby you have to do steps of church discipline, is for the protection of the body, but it's also for that person, that when they are put away from their family, much like a teenager who is put out of the home because he refuses to leave his sin, that when his stomach is growling at night and he doesn't have a place to lay his head on, on a pillow or a warm bed, that he misses his family. Don't undercut that. We see it with the man in 1 Corinthians, and I think that's the one who was restored in 2 Corinthians. Put him out. The man who was sleeping with his mother. Put him out. Don't undercut his restoration because it makes you feel better. Do the hard things and love him deeply so that he might repent and come back. We cannot do them any good or the church by turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to this serious sin. Now, we have not done this yet at Metro Bible. I will tell you, looking back, there's one or two times we, we should have. I mean, we should have gone through the process the way I went through it. Whether that person would have been put out or not, I don't know. But, but I have not done this correctly in the, the 15 years that I've been here. But it will happen at some point. I don't care how much we're growing in Christ. There, that's not a gauge as to whether this will happen or not. It will happen. And if we utilize this tool rightly, swiftly, kindly, but firmly, there's a good opportunity that they won't have to be put out. But if they do, the congregation trusts their under-shepherds, prays for that person, and the body, the flock, remains unified. Amen?